Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin. And if you do watch this on Spotify, when y'all see me on the couch like this, the laptop just propped up on pillows. I got like these next to me. I just got home. I'm starving because your girl is running behind the curve. I'm behind the power curve. Is that a thing? My dad used to say that way behind the power curve. I'm behind the power curve. Oh, show. I'm like barely getting this intro in in time for my editor. So anyways, first of all, before I say anything, thank you guys so much for your donations for choices. I was asking for, and I thought that was a bit of a reach to be honest. And we got six. So these are going to be bomb ass gifts like Nike basketball shorts and sweatpants and, you know, slippers. And of course, like toothbrush, toothpaste, all that stuff like deodorant. I wanted to do a gift certificate. So they used to take us to the CVS right next door. And I wanted to do like a $20 gift card so that they could get, you know, it's nice to be able to get something that you want to, but they don't do store run anymore at Choices, which is such a bummer. It was like a nice little outing during the day that they would take us on. So anyways, because I wanted, my point is I wanted them to be able to pick out their own like you know, if they wanted a certain type of deodorant or whatever, but we'll get them body wash and all that stuff. And I cannot thank you guys enough. And to be honest, like not even just for those guys, I felt super supported by the donations and people responding because I feel like sometimes I know for you guys, this crowd, of course, you hear something for recovery and you're going to feel inclined to maybe support because you get it. But I also posted on my personal Instagram and I had like clients that I haven't seen in a long time. And they were like, sure, yeah, here's 20 bucks, you know, here's 25 bucks. Like people not in recovery. And I was like, dude, I feel supported by this too. You know, like people have been listening, you know, it seems. So anyway, thank you guys so, so much. So the stockings will be from the Nod Pod community from the Chasing Heroin podcast. And yeah, I appreciate it so much. So today's episode is with Abby Fickley. So Abby Fickley, she's sober since 2018. She's a bartender turned influencer, very popular YouTube. She's almost at a million YouTube followers, which is like a career in and of itself. She recently got to stop bartending and is just YouTubing full time and, you know, TikTok and Instagram. She's Abby Fickley, Abby with an E, Fickley across all platforms. And she does like some sober recovery content, but she also does like single mom stuff. And she makes videos about like co-parenting during the holidays. And she's very popular in that side of TikTok as well, the parenting side of TikTok, which is kind of cool. So talk to her today. And like I said, sober since 2018, and she ended up a heroin addict as well. And her dad pressed felony charges against her, 32 counts, felony charges for cashing checks out of his checkbook. And she was looking at seven years from her family and they had her kid, they had her son. So it's an interesting story. She's funny and we talked forever. This is a long one. We talked for like two and a half hours. It's my ring light keeps dying. You'll see during the thing. And I'm like, oh my God, of all the things that could happen, not my ring light. And so I'm like, especially talking to her, she's like beautiful with her, her like really nice YouTube studio. And I'm like, oh my God, let me find my other ring light. So I'm like trying to like put one together with my hands behind the computer. I'm like, no daylight, no, like a vampire that sees light. Anyways, we had a great conversation. I think you guys are really going to like it. And as always, y'all, I'll see you next week and let me know what you think of the episode. Bye. Well, Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Our stories are similar in, in ways. And 
as I said to you, when I initially reached out to you, the whole like dad connection thing, like with your dad being pivotal in your recovery is huge for me too. He's really pivotal in my life and in my recovery as well. And same thing, he absolutely would have pressed charges on me for sure, which we'll get to. He told my mom too at one point. He was like, call the cops. They don't uh-huh, live together right? anymore. And he's like, send her to jail. And at one point he emailed, he reached out to a court clerk. I was in jail for strong arm robbery. And he called the clerk and said he wanted to talk to the judge and, you know, in Georgia where he lives, I don't know, maybe you can do that in San Diego. Like you can't. And the clerk was like, I guess I could take a message. I mean, who knows what the chain was, but he was like, give her the max, tell the judge, whatever the penalty is, give her a strike, give her the max, she's a menace to society. She's going to die. Same Mm -hmm. thing. So when I heard your story, Doug actually was like, I've got somebody you should interview. Same stuff with the dad. And I was like, oh, oh, I know her. I follow her on Instagram. Cool. (laughs) Crazy. And I feel like that's rooted in something else that you talk about, which is that you think of addicts as having like these broken home childhoods, but not always. Not always. And you you certainly didn't, which, you you know, which is why it benefited you later, that relationship. So let's talk about your family and growing up and like where you're from. Yeah. So I say this a lot when I speak at high schools, because especially with the younger people, preteens, young adults, it is so important, I think, based off personal experience, for them to understand that it's not the homeless guy on the side of the street that never had parents or was kicked out. Or It can be, of course, but anybody can fall into this disease. And it's such a crucial part of my story to talk about the younger time. So I grew up, you know, fortunate we had everything that that we could have needed or wanted. I grew up in a cul-de-sac Oh, it was like the best thing ever. Our house, if you when you drove up into the circle, our house was right in the center. It was on a little bit of a hill. My dad actually told me later, they, my parents had built that house. And uh, my dad said he chose that piece of land because it was actually, it sat the highest out of all of the land within that neighborhood. And so it really did feel like we kind of looked over the neighborhood. And it was a no outlet street. So it was very quiet. There were kids outside all day long, we'd play release, Red Rover, you know, whatever, cops and robbers. I mean, it was like that elite childhood that, you know, you see in movies. And I'm so fortunate for that. My next door neighbor was my best friend. We grew up together. So, you know, we would just run right across the street. I'd wait until 9am when my mom would let me call her landline to see if she could play. And the good old days before iPads and phones, (laughs) just sat by the landline. Anyway, I grew up as the youngest of three siblings. My sister's the oldest. My brother's in the middle. I'm the baby. So my brother and sister are very close in age. And then there's a gap. So that plays a little bit of a role in my story, only because I, um, you know, my parents were told that after my brother, they couldn't have any more children. And then there came me. So, you know, that definitely plays a role in my story. I felt a little bit isolated at times within the family. But my parents, they're still together to this day. You know, my dad's an architect. My mom was a doctor. She's now retired. She was a chair of the undergraduate nursing program at Carlo University here in Pittsburgh. So, you know, really cool stuff. My sister's a doctor. So what? Yeah. Your mom and your sister are doc- like yes. med school PhD doctors? Yes. Yeah. My sister has her PhD in epidemiology, which is like the study of disease. And she works for Pitt University. Yeah. So That's like, so impressive. It's so impressive, right? And then I'm like, <laughs> can I go to beauty school? <laughs> you know, it's just like a lot of differences. But what's so funny about that <sighs> is I always blamed them for making me feel less than and like that I wasn't oh. good enough. But what's so funny, like hindsight is the moment I said I wanted to go to beauty school, it was like, oh, yay, that's great. Let's do it. Let's like they were so supportive. There was never, 
you need to, you know, well, my mom kind of wanted me to be a nurse, but she never made me feel bad about it. Maybe with other things, but not this. Right. There were there were other things if, in my own defense that led me to feel this way, I think. Okay. You know, other small things. My siblings were both in, thank God they don't do this anymore, by the way. I don't know if it was like this for you in elementary school, but they had a gifted program. And I just think it's so wild to think about now, like the gifted kids, <laughs> the rest are <laughs> here. They, I don't think they do it anymore. They don't in my daughter's school, thank God. Okay. Because I just, because so I was. Weird. I was in gifted. Were you? And yeah. I love and my that. brother wasn't. And just now as you're talking, I never knew my brother felt this way ever. My mom told me recently he felt really like dumb. Like less because, than. N- less than me. And my parents are the same way. They were super supportive of whatever we wanted to do. My oh, mom definitely wanted great. us to go to college. Same yes, thing. Same. Yep, but same. my dad was like, I just want you guys to be happy. I don't care where that comes from, whatever, anything we wanted to do. When I moved to LA to be an actress and dropped out of school, he wasn't, oh. but like, you know, but my brother, I guess went and took the test for gifted. He must have been like right on the edge. I and can then tell you how similar these stories are right now. So and- he didn't get in. He didn't get in. No. Yeah, and I so, guess it has hurt him since he was like six. And my he struggles. My brother really struggles. Okay. And I guess I relate that's part with of my it. brother. That's so yeah. insane. That's so insane. We have so much in common with the brother and the struggles. Now my brother has like somewhat different different things, but and this is why I say I just get it. I don't think it's a good way or change. I don't the think word. they do it anymore. They I don't, don't think they do yeah, it anymore. I, they, they okay. Don't. Okay. But both of my siblings weren't gifted. And I just think it's, okay. you know, based on your performance and your grades and then they test you because they feel like you should be tested, right? It's not right. like the parents are calling and saying, Test my kid for no. gifted. Well, that's what happened to me. So my brother and sister are both in gifted. I am not for a reason, right? I wasn't brought into that room. I wasn't brought in there to take that test. Well, my mom just couldn't handle that because oh, two no. two of the three were gifted. I will oh, never no. forget this. I was in my bedroom playing with my brother and my mom came in and she said, Abby, we need to go. We went up to the superintendent building. I'll never forget of our district. And, you know, she said, we got to go get you tested for gifted. And I was young. I was in elementary school, but I knew better. I knew that we were wasting our time. And I knew that this was just going to remind me that I'm not gifted. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. Oh, no. So I go, so right. And I remember my brother, like, trying to prep me. He's like, oh, Abby, it's not that bad. Like, they're just going to hold up these blocks. And he was trying to, like, prep me for it and make me feel better. And I'm like, it's not that I'm afraid to do it. I just don't want to have to hear that I'm not gifted. So anyway, I go. And lo and behold, I did not pass the gifted test. And here's the thing. It was never <laughs> spoke about again, right? It was never spoke about again. Nobody was mad at me, but they didn't need to be. I was already upset with myself. I already felt less than they already. Like, so from a very young age, I was less than my siblings. I wasn't as good as them. And this was before, you know, my sister would go on to be a doctor, my brother, computer science. And, you know, so (laughs) just these small things in my childhood, they all are relevant to my addiction and just the bad downturn that I, uh, yeah. So- I want to throw this in because I'm sure there are more people than I've ever thought based on our conversation that had like this gifted trauma, right? Where (laughs) you maybe weren't in it. But this is what I want to say. And I learned this about my brother later and also my husband. So my husband is super smart. Okay. In completely different ways than me. Like sometimes he'll text me meaning the word too, like also. Right. But only have one O, just T-O instead of T-O-O. Are you crazy? With him, no. With anybody else, yes. But I realized with him, 
that I was like, okay, so like this solidifies something I've always suspected, which is that, and this is why I don't like those tests. And I don't even love the idea of the SATs. I did great on the SATs. My brother didn't, but my brother is super smart, like my husband. But all those tests test for is if you have an aptitude for taking tests and reading and comprehending visual visual the, like cues, the questions, right? right? Yes, Not exactly. even so much of the smarts that you- Right. And it, and so it's related to your verbal acumen and your reading IQ, which is very different from like your spatial IQ yes. or your math IQ. You know, like Skylar can do math in his head for blueprints and construction. Like I'll just see him doing it. He's not even writing anything down and like spatially he'll know what things are, but I don't. And so those tests only measure a certain type of aptitude. Such and a the good same point. thing with gifted. It was based on those Iowa tests. I don't know if they still do them. The Iowa test with the I know Scantrons exactly once what a year. Yep, I don't yeah. think so, but I do know what you, you're talking about. Yep. And it just measures a very certain type of aptitude. Right. And there's so many kids that were really intelligent don't know in that. other ways. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like at least preface it. At least totally. <laughs> totally oh, yeah, tell know, people. This is such a, a random but like prevalent point that like you said, I, I can't imagine how many people are going to relate to just a right? simple thing. Totally. And as a yeah. mom now, truly, I'm like, thank God, because if my kid wasn't in it and even just, you know, and it didn't, I don't know, it didn't bother me that I wasn't in it, but it was more so that my mom wasn't just okay with the fact that I wasn't and wanted to push to see if I could be. And this will also lead into a lot of other aspects of my childhood, which just kind of like superficial, right? And like image being important. And so it kind of falls into that category. And we see that with a lot of other things like the difference between getting ready for church versus being at church. It was like a light switch, right? You scream and yell and everybody's running. My mom has like a roller in her hair. And then we walk in as this like, hello, and we're chatting with, and as a child, it's very confusing. And for me, I studied my mom and I wasn't doing it on purpose, but I was, I mean, I was watching her and what I didn't realize was I was picking up on those tendencies and I was learning how to spend my energy and my focus on how I want people to perceive me and how I want people to view me rather than putting my energy into the internal stuff that needed work and needed that energy. This I still struggle with. I mean, this has been my whole life, right? And you know what though? That's so interesting. I did that with my mom too, but then I made a really concerted effort to be the opposite Isn't of that everything she did. Me yes. Too. Why do you think you did? Okay. Cause I was like, she is fake as fuck. I just thought that. And I now know she listens to the show. I she she might hear that. I was thinking that tweet <laughs> yeah. when I That's what I thought. I was really wrong about my mom about so many things. Like I would be so lucky to be anything like her. She's this driven, intelligent, generous, spiritually generous woman. She's really amazing. But I also really watched her. I've never thought about that till you said it, but I did the opposite. What do you think made you study her just because she was like the primary like woman in your life? Did you kind of look up to her and admire her? Or maybe we all do that with our parent that's the same gender. Yeah. Maybe we all do. That's what I was going to say. I think it could have to do with, yeah, her being my mom. But I, you know, I think I did it with my dad too. I mean, I've always been like a um, psychologically in tune person. Like, I, I don't know, just the way people think, why they do what they do. Like, I've always been very in tune with those things. So I don't know if that's part of it. But honestly, I don't think it was much more than just they were my parents and I trusted them more than anyone else in the world. And however they acted and whatever they did is 
I assume was the right thing to do. You know, totally. I, I think that's really all it was. But then there, you know, there later, later came a time where that led to resentment. And that's when I was like, I never want to be anything like her. And then I think like you, I just think as we get older, we're able to respect our parents more, even if there's pain or things they've done to us, just because we're, I don't know, the older I get, the more I'm able to accept and understand that like, this is also my mom's first time on earth. And then too, as a mom, (laughs) right? It's like, oh my God, I am not a perfect mom and I've made a lot of mistakes. And if my child, you know, decides to crucify me for those things when she gets older on, on podcasts, she gets to do that, you know, but I just try to (laughs) think of all, all, not that she will, I don't think, but it's just, you think of all of these things and it just, it gives me, it, it allows me to give my mom more grace. And then respect her more, right? Because I mean, my mom went back, she was a nurse, like an RN in a hospital her whole life, basically. Well, she grew up poor and she studied at CCAC and she worked full time at McDonald's to pay for CCAC and schooling. She had three sisters, you know, she was kind of the caregiver. They all shared a bedroom, like a very, you know, so my mom wanted different for herself and she worked her ass off. And then even after she became a nurse, when I was in high school, and this is a big part of my story too. When I was in high school is when she decided she wanted to go back for her PhD. So she did oh. it. Yeah. So she did it while I was in high school on her computer from home through Chatham University. So she was wrapped up, tied up, staring at the computer screen like my entire high school career. And I really needed her at that time. You know, I didn't communicate that. Well, I'm sure I did in unhealthy ways, but not with my words. And I do have to say at that time, my dad really stepped up in my life. I mean, in ways that, you know, my mom had never been to a competitive cheer competition, not one. My dad never missed one, sat with all the crazy cheer moms. And I wished my mom was there with a a cheer mom t-shirt on like the rest. But my dad never, I mean, he drove me, we went to Canada for a competition, Florida. And, you know, you know, not to knock my mom because there's things that she did that I am so grateful for. And they equally are, you know, I'm grateful for both of them, but my dad just stands out to me in those ways, even in recovery. And before I found long, long term sobriety, when I was relapsing, relapsing, I mean, I'll just never forget one, one day I was um back from California, because I ran back and forth to treatment from Pittsburgh to California, literally across the country, back and forth, back and forth. And at one point, I blew things up in Cali. So I ran home to Pittsburgh, which is what I did. And I was just laying on the floor of what was once my bedroom, but is now a spare room in their home. And, you know, I didn't know anybody in Pittsburgh that was sober. I didn't have any resources here. Everything I learned was out in Cali. I mean, I would just felt my dad came in my room and laid on the floor next to me, pulled his phone out and started YouTubing sobriety, sober, addiction, recovery. And he would just like, he was desperate, you know, and he was just playing these, you know, whatever they were, maybe one was a podcast or a YouTube video, but he would, he just laid the phone in between us. And he just laid there like this. And it just, you know, and he later, you know, would go on to continue to do whatever he possibly could. And I'm really excited to do this podcast with you today, because as much as you know, I I share my story a lot, and the parts with my dad, and you know, I know you relate to that a lot in your story are some of the biggest parts that a lot of people have heard me share, you know, many times. However, my dad was here the other day because they have a house in Myrtle Beach and they've been gone a lot. And so when I bought my house last month and just a lot of really big things for me, especially because I just never thought I'd, well, I didn't think I'd be alive at this age, but it's a lot of stuff. And my parents, you know, were at the beach for it. So they weren't 
able to see my home or anything. And, and when I was buying it and when I was moving in and carrying all this furniture and doing all these things, they just couldn't be here. And you know, my dad did fly home for the inspection, which I appreciated because I really needed his help. But anyway, they're finally home and he offered to help build some furniture the other day. So I like, please help me out. When we were done, he asked me if I wanted to go get food and we went out to dinner. And for the first time since everything, really, my dad's a very quiet guy. You don't get much out of him, but when he does talk, people listen, you know, that kind of guy and um, very humble for the first time, honestly, like since everything, when I was getting sober and when he pressed charges on me, which we'll get into, we had a conversation about it. And so I haven't got to share any of that yet. So I'm really excited that I get to do that here with you. Me too. Okay. That's excellent. Had you guys had never talked about it ever? Not really. I mean, like little (gasps) things, you know, I've gotten gifts. We've like, in terms of like a heart to heart is the best. Okay. No. Like nothing. Whoa. Yeah, we've okay, well, surfaced conversations. And I we've just talked got about my, yeah, we've talked about my sobriety for sure. sure. <gasps> yeah, no, not him pressing charges and those things. We really have never gotten into it okay. until that's why it was such a big deal for me. We totally. we ate, we ate for twenty minutes. We talked for two hours. I'm not kidding. I mean, I, sure. we looked around and the restaurant was closed. And, oh, so yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so okay. I can't wait to get there and to and to yes, hear about that. Yes. So and we're both obviously talkers, <laughs> which we were saying off air. We're gonna do our best so, this day. Yeah, you don't get into gifted, <laughs> and then. Where do we go from there? We'll back so, up a little bit. Yeah, so I so I failed a gifted program. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so um, you know, I grew up pretty pretty normal. We went to church every Sunday, like I kind of mentioned. I was a, you know, I did my communion. My I was an altar server. I did all that stuff. I did CCD. So you know there's that whole aspect because that was kind of confusing. And, you know, you see one thing at church and then another thing in the everyday lives of of the people you look up to, it's confusing. So there's that. And then, you know, like I said, I had a best friend that lived next door. I had, I had some really great friendships that uh, I maintained throughout all of my years of schooling. And then um, I found cheerleading and gymnastics, which would end up being like my saving grace. So I did youth cheerleading, which was just through the school. But then I also found competitive cheer which was really what did it for me. I just loved it. I thrived at it. I was talented. I was a great tumbler. And so I was there at least three days a week, every week. And I think this is also when the anxiety started. So this would be the first mental health like symptom that I had ever experienced. And for whatever reason, I I could spectate, but I don't have any reasoning on why I never told anybody about the anxiety because it was bad. I don't know why I, I, and this would be a common theme for me that I just have to figure it all out alone. Like, I don't know why I'm like, that. that's my first thought. And I don't know why that I have to figure it out alone. It's me versus me. And I, you know, nobody else can, I don't, I don't know. So I dealt with this, with the anxiety and this was especially prevalent. Like I remember I'd be on my way to competitive cheer and I would just, in my little head, cause I was pretty young still. I didn't understand what it was. It just felt like I was about to get on a roller coaster or I was watching a scary movie. It was just this anticipation, my heart lump in my chest. And I didn't know it was anxiety, but I got it every time I was on my way to cheer. But then when I'd be at cheer, it's when I'd feel the best because I'm tumbling. I mean, I'm like, I don't know. I'm like that with working out too. Like the harder, the, the better it is for me. So the tumbling and the stunting and the loud music, it was really, really beneficial for me. And I clung to that. And I think, you know, as things got weird in the home, cheer was just this consistent thing every week. You know, I knew my coach, I knew my, the cheerleaders, and it was a second family kind of, but then that leads into, you know, my mom, not, I don't want to say not being supportive of it because she was supportive of it. She just couldn't be around. And like, like we were kind of mentioning before, 
I used to have a lot more resentment for her not being there at all for cheer. But, you know, hindsight, she was studying for her doctorate and whatever. She was doing other things. My dad was there and I was grateful for that. He took me to every practice, picked me up from every practice. It was always my dad. So yeah, I continued to cheer through middle school and then high school. I made the cheerleading squad in high school. I was still doing competitive. And this is kind of when things started to change, not only in me, but also in the home. And so I think those two things ran pretty parallel. So when my siblings moved out to go to college, my life felt like I was an only child. So I'm the only one in the home. My mom's studying for her doctorate. She's not around. She's not emotionally available. She's not physically available. My dad is working full time, you know, to try to pay the bills, but also be a present father. I mean, my dad would make me breakfast every morning. He was always the one that woke me up for school. He was always the one that drove me to school. I mean, he was he was the most active in my life and in my memory. When I look back, it was always him. And so But they were having issues. And I remember, and this I think is an important thing to mention, because I know a lot of people relate to this. And and I'm sure it's talked about, but I don't hear it a lot is when your parents aren't doing so hot, and you as a child, like desperately want them to split up. Having that thought is confusing as a kid, because you feel like a bad person. You're like, why? Like, I wanted them so badly to just split up because I knew how miserable they Oh, my God. Yeah, they were miserable. They were fighting. They were screaming. It was just so, like, the house was so toxic. Okay. And I knew that they weren't happy. I knew because I was in the home and I knew that if they would just split up, there would be peace. And so I, I just think as a kid, I was so tired of the yelling. And I remember I, like, briefly mentioned this in a video. It wasn't even the main point. And the entire comment section was just, oh my God, I wanted my parents to split up so badly, but I felt like such a bad kid for thinking that or wanting that. But when you're in like a, just a not healthy, chaotic home with fighting, it's like, well, of course you just want them to separate. But I I just don't think it's talked about. Yeah. That's blowing my mind because my parents did split up when I was 17, totally unexpected. And I really didn't want them to. Right. But they also never fought. Everything seemed really fine. Oh, good. Uh, It was fine, actually. It was like kind of out of nowhere. And so. For you, right? It felt out of nowhere for you. They did a good job at keeping it. Good for yeah, them, yeah. but I can see how that would be confusing for you. Wow, but other people are like, I agree, I wanted my parents to split up. That actually kind of blows my mind. I mean, I'm obviously that's probably more yeah. common. I yes. never would have thought that. Also, same. And that's why I don't, I think that's why, like, it was the first time I ever mentioned it. It's not something I would generally say out loud. And yeah, that's why okay. I was so shocked when I did, like I said, almost like in passing of like a different kind of conversation. Yeah, blew my mind, the amount of people. And that's when it really stood out to me. And that's when it it dawned on me that I just don't think it's talked about a lot. And of course, there's the other side of that to where you don't want your parents to split. And this is where it got interesting, because my siblings weren't in the house. So my siblings were like, Oh, my God, you're nuts. Why would you want mom and dad to split up? And I just so desperately wanted them to come stay in my bedroom for a day. Like I just so badly wanted them to come home for the weekend and see what I was living through. And I, and I do have to say my brother, because he was in the middle. So he was around, you know, for my sister, I just think it was a very, she had a very good upbringing. My parents were well, she moved out, went to college. Good. Great. When my brother was moving out, they were starting to go downhill on their relationship. So my brother, he saw more than my sister did. And he also came around a little bit more. So my brother knew what I was going through. I only say that because I did later find out that he wrote my mom a letter and it was basically in defense of me and him being like worried for me. 
And I never okay. got to really read that letter and I won't get into it too much because it's more him and my mom thing. But just to say, you know, my brother slightly understood. For my sister, it was more so like, well, I don't want to have to go to a million places on Christmas when I have kids one day. And I remember as a kid being like, that's what you care about. But, you know, she, again, she yeah. she didn't have the same childhood I did. And, you know, yeah. a, a very validating thing, something so little but so validating was the other night when my dad and I had dinner. He said it. He said, well, you know, your sister, you and your sister and you, you grew up in totally different households. And I like, wow. I couldn't believe that he, I was just so grateful that he admitted that to me because it yeah, validated totally. So much of just like, you can't put me and my sister in the same box because we did not have the same upbringing. I mean, they were in fact, polar opposites. Now to fast forward, they did split up. My dad got an apartment a couple minutes down the road and I was just so relieved. I lived at the home with my mom, my, where I had a bedroom and I would go over to my dad sometimes, but this didn't last very long. My dad moved back in. How how did they work it out? They're still married. How yes. did they do that? I honestly think... Do you know? So I know I know a lot of it was their religion. I know, number one, I just think a big part of not wanting to split to begin with is just because it goes against what they believe in. And, you know, my dad was... Because yeah, CCD, that's Catholic, right? Yeah, you guys yeah are Catholic? Christian okay. Catholic. Right. My dad read at church okay. on Sundays, very involved. Okay. And so... And with that, very involved in the community. Actually, yeah. our priest, who I still love to death, he doesn't live as close to us anymore, so I don't get to see him as much. But, uh, you know, he baptized me, baptized my daughter, and then he left the church. And now he, got, like I said, he's somewhere further away. But my parents were very close with our priest growing up. I mean, he was over for dinner, like at oh least once gosh. a month. He came over <laughs> for Christmas, and he'd get Aww. me and my siblings all gifts. We were really, really close with him. But just to say, I okay. think they, they felt a lot of pressure from yeah, the community. Okay. So they did split, didn't last long. My dad moved back okay. in. And so just this was just so confusing for me. I mean, totally. it, yeah. it was just wild. And, you know, my mom was going through kind of like her own process, her own stuff at the time. And I think it was, you know, so her and I were fighting. Her and my dad were fighting. All my dad wanted was peace within the family, whatever that took, healthy or yeah. not, you know, telling me okay. what I need to hear. And so it, things got a little chaotic. And this would also be the time that I started partying. So one story that I that I tell a lot just because it kind of just goes to show how I began using substance to be productive. I think it's a common thing with us women, especially with using. I remember my mom one time was bitching at me to clean my room and I just did not want to do it. So my first thought, right, to get through cleaning my room was to take a can of Coke, pour half of it out, go down to the basement where my dad had a bar and fill, you know, the other half up with Jack Daniels. So I'm in my room. I put music on. I'm alone. I think I might have been like a sophomore. I'm alone in my bedroom drinking a Jack and Coke to get through cleaning my bedroom, you know? Yeah. And so, of course, I didn't realize it at the time, but I began utilizing substance for many reasons, but from a very early, well, not, I know a lot of people start way younger, but from an early age. Um, right. Totally. And that would, you okay. know, whether that was to be productive, to get rid of anxiety, social anxiety. I just felt like I was better when I was high. I mean, I was confident and I was stronger. And so that kind of started. I was, I could out drink the guys at parties and that was so cool of me. And, you know, all that good stuff. I've dabbled with marriage a little bit, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really get into the hard stuff okay. until I was getting at that ready point. to grad. At that point, yeah. Okay. Uh, close okay. to graduation is when I found things okay. like benzos. And I've heard you share this on another podcast as well. You said cheerleading was like really important to you. 
and you started acting out in other ways as well. And you ended up quitting cheerleading. And it sounded to me when I heard you tell that story that that was fairly instrumental in what began a breakdown for you. Would you say that's right? Absolutely. I I think so. I think, you know, just extracurriculars, these kind of sports, and they do keep kids on the up and up and hanging out with with good groups of kids. And it's one small aspect, but it was definitely a key sign that I was starting to make the wrong decisions. And with cheerleading, it was very pivotal because the way it, because of the way it happened. So my coach at the time, the head coach, who is somebody who is in this community where I live today, she actually owns a a gymnast, a tumbling school now. And Milo's, my daughter's been there really crazy how this all works, but she, her and I started to not get along. And I also was me and my best friend. We were starting to, you know, like I said, dabbling with alcohol. So what we would do, this is so wild, on Fridays, me and my best friend, we'd come home from school, we'd come to my house, we'd go in the basement where the bar was, and then there was a TV, and we'd play Call of Duty, we would play zombies, okay, on Call of Duty. And we had this game with zombies on Call of Duty, you know, you get, you try to reach the highest level that you can. And so we had this game where every time like we would die, we had to take a shot. So this is after school on a Friday, knowing that we have to cheer the high school football game like it's seven o'clock tonight, right? So we'd play zombies and Jose, I this I specifically remember this day, but it was Jose Cuervo that we were drinking, which is just insane. I mean, just straight shots of Jose Cuervo. We get ready, we get our uniforms on and we go to the game. And so, you know, I remember falling, I fell asleep in the gym because I remember she came in to wake me up to tell me that we, it, we were about to go on the field for halftime. So I ran out there, you know, I was a flyer, so I'm in the air. I mean, it was just so bad. So And you're drunk? I'm drunk. Could you do the cheers and everything? Could you jump up and do the thing in the air? And- I was doing it and I was having okay. I was having a damn good time. <laughs> but right. okay. Oh my gosh. But it it got bad. So long to make a long story short, it, eventually the coach called my mom. My parents okay. and I got in a big fight. And then I did the whole blame game where I said the coach is tearing apart my family. She's a horrible person. Look what she's done. I blamed her for okay. sure. I blamed her. I actually had a big resentment towards her for a while. So ultimately what happened was I quit. You know, if I didn't quit, I was probably going to be removed anyways. Right. But you know, nothing crazy happened where like I got caught. Okay. I wanted to spend my Friday nights differently. Now that I began totally. dabbling in substance. You know, that's what it was. I mean, right? It takes away your passions, the things you're good at. It just strips you of everything that's good for you. And that's what started. That's what we started to see happen right there. Yeah, for sure. So then how do we get to, because you do graduate high school, right? I do. Yep. Okay. And then how do we get to, I know at some point opiates enter your life. Yeah. Because you're only 29 and you've been sober since 2018. So now we're getting, there's only a few more years here, right? You get into opiates. So what does this start to look like? Yeah. So I graduated high school in 2013. Like I mentioned, I went to beauty school. When I was in beauty school, so let me just back up briefly. Bobby, the father of my child, he entered our school district. I want to say maybe in eighth grade, middle school, right before high school. So I had a lot of like classes with him in high school. He was funny. He was bad. He would throw a math book across the room to get to, so that he could go to ISS and not have to sit in class. He was just an idiot for no reason. And yeah. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. I had no interest in him. But we became really good friends, really good friends. Like he was that guy that I could call in the middle of the night at a party, arguing with my boyfriend. He'd come pick me up. He was very safe. He'd make sure I was okay. He'd get me home. I could trust him. You know, so like I had a boyfriend, he had a girlfriend, but him and I, like we go on rides and we would chat and we got really close. And so eventually now I'm in beauty school. 
I graduate high school and beauty school, him and I start dating. And this was really, we just had such a solid friendship that I guess eventually it, it turned, I just, I started to gain other feelings and, and so did he. So, so we began dating while I was in beauty school. We were not together for three months when I found out I was pregnant with our daughter. And so I'm 19 years old. I've been with this guy for three months. I mean, I'll be honest, I had my reasons for being with him. I was gaining in certain ways and I was smoking for free, put it that way. But it wasn't that this was, no offense, Bobby, love you to death. The person I wanted to spend the rest of my life with and start a family with, I was 19. And that's the only reason I say that. Some people make the right decision on who they want to be with at 19, but the majority probably wouldn't. You're just too young. And so lock yourself in with somebody at 19 with a baby I'm going to be honest. I wasn't ready for it. I didn't plan to do it. I knew my parents were going to kill me. I was in beauty school. Oh my school. God. You dreams. must have been so scared I when you took your test. Where did you take Where did you take the test? I have to know this story because whether or not you've actually been pregnant, every woman listening to this podcast has had, I don't want to generalize, a moment where yeah. you have to buy a fucking test at the CVS yeah, and go sure. somewhere. For sure. And I've never actually asked anybody this story. What was your moment? Yeah, Where did is, you go take it? This is actually hilarious. <laughs> so just to back up to give you some context, actually, the father of my child, so he lived in a home that his parents had bought, you know, five minutes away, whatever. Like I said, my dad would always wake me up in the morning for school. We did the same thing with beauty school. He was my alarm clock forever, which I'm very grateful for. I drove myself to beauty school, but he was still waking me up every morning. So he wakes me up one morning for beauty school. And it's like exceptionally early. And I'm like, dad, it is like five in the morning. I don't need to be up till seven. What is going on here? He says, well, Bobby is downstairs at the kitchen table with your mother. What? So, you know, this is my boy. I'm not pregnant yet at this time. My boyfriend's downstairs at the kitchen table. I'm like, what is going on? So I go downstairs. He's sitting at the kitchen table with my mom crying. Never seen this man cry in my life. What the hell is going on? Long story short, his house burnt to the ground. Oh my gosh. Yeah, space heater incident. They had a space heater running on an extension cord overnight. He lost everything. Everybody was okay. Thank God. It was just him and his dad in the house at the time. They both got out. So nobody was hurt. But I mean, he had nothing. Overnight, boom, nothing. And so insurance put him in an extended stay America, right? So a hotel, but like with a kitchenette in a closet. And so, you know, mind you, we're young. Oh, this was our chance to play house. That's awesome. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it, it is. Those it's, things are great. They are, are great. He had his own, you know, his parents had another yeah. one. His parents never married, but they remained together up until his dad died, uh, a direct result of this disease, unfortunately. But so, yeah, we had our own room. And, you know, it's funny. And Bobby's mom will say this today. She's like, I always said they're playing house in there. He's going to get her pregnant. And so that's basically what happened. So we're playing house. I'm staying at this extended say all the time. I still lived at my parents, but like I'd sleep over there a lot. And we were absolutely playing house. So I was on birth control, but it was the pills and I wasn't taking them as, as frequently as I should have been or as consistent as I should have been. I don't know if I thought I was above the rules or what, but I just didn't expect it to happen. So yeah, I don't get my period for a while. I say it so nonchalantly to Bobby. I'm like, Hey, I haven't had my period. And I mean, I'm like a month late. And I remember he like shot his head over and he was like, what? He's like, you need to take a pregnancy test. I'm like, I'm not pregnant. So he buys it. I'm like, you're crazy. I'll do it to make you feel better. That's where I'm at. He's scared because what I'm telling him, but I don't think. So it was a digital one that just said yes or no on the little screen. We're at the extended stay America where she was conceived. And we're in the bathroom of the extended stay. 
the test is sitting there. It's just blinking, loading, right? And we're both staring at it. I'll never forget this moment. And I go, or he said it, I think. He goes, oh, this damn test is broken. The moment he said that, we see, yes, exclamation point. Oh, my god! So I fall to the ground in the bathroom, like collapse. He, we laugh about this all the time. He, for whatever reason, runs across the hotel room and like falls against the window, which we joke about now that he was trying to jump out the window and try to <laughs> escape. But yeah, so we kind of like darted our own ways. I collapsed. He runs out of the bathroom. He like falls into the window. <laughs> and yeah, so basically once we pulled ourselves together a few minutes later, we stood in the bathroom and I said to him, I said, I, we can't do this. We're 19. My parents will kill me. Like we're not doing this. And he looked at me and he said, and I will always give him this credit. He said, Abby, you don't have to do this if you don't want to do this. He said, I understand you're young. You have goals. There's things you want to do. He goes, all I ask though, is that you please carry that baby for me until it's ready and I will take full custody. He wanted to do it and he was okay if I didn't want to do it, but he did not want me to you know, terminate. He did not want me to give it up for adoption. He was just so like on board, which was really interesting to me. Yeah. And so his response, of course, warmed me up to the idea. All I ever wanted was to be a mom. It just not this way. This I, I wanted to have my shit figured out. You know, this wasn't the way I wanted to do it. And so it was unfortunate in that way. But once I kind of got a an idea of where his head was at, I started to warm up to my parents absolutely killing me. And I'm like, this is still insane. Now, mind you, my parents were at the beach when we found out. So him and I both agreed that we weren't gonna tell them until they came home. We didn't want to ruin their vacation, understandably. Well, mind you, his mom had him when she was like 15. She's really young. A lot of people think we're sisters or they'll think him and his mom are dating, which is so funny because she's, she looks so young and she's always around. I mean, she's a huge part of my daughter's life. But at this time, her and I weren't close. We didn't know each other very well, actually. And when she found out, she was like a tornado. She was so angry. And I think a lot of it is because she had Bobby at 15 and it was just so traumatic and she was just in fight or flight. It was bad. She had no support. So I think a lot of it for her came from her own experience. But so what she decided to do was call my parents at the beach. And, <gasps> oh, yeah. shit. So unfortunately, like, I'll never get that back, right? Like, I'll never get that back yeah. to be able to tell them yeah. myself. And and so that really sucked. My parents did almost kill me. I'll never forget what my dad said. He looked at me and he said, you can't even take care of yourself. How the hell are you going to take care of a baby? And I just was like, it stung. <laughs> it stung. Yeah. He was, right. he was right. But yeah, we yeah. were in extended stay America. And I never mind. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that later. But Off camera. Okay. Yeah, I'll tell you something. <laughs> right. It's just funny. Something funny that I did. Okay. All right. deal, okay. okay. So yeah, extend. I pass it all the time. And we will say to Myla, that's where you used to be there we, I don't, we we point to it sometimes when we drive past that oh exact, my gosh we could see which window was our room anyway yeah uh, yeah yeah okay so you're not using yet though nope so i am not okay. using yet i'm i'm smoking that was my thing at that time okay so yeah there was no issue in the pregnancy or, or my ability to have a healthy pregnancy and and i did and during my pregnancy, I was working full time at Chick Fil A. I, I had been working at Chick Fil A since I was fifteen. I got that job in high school. I worked at Chick Fil A for like six years. It was my first job. But um, yeah. So I worked full time through the whole pregnancy. I graduated beauty school pregnant. I passed my state boards pregnant. 
And I got my first salon job pregnant. Bobby and I got a place. Now, the, the initial reason, I'm going I'm to really get back on track here, for bringing up the pregnancy is because it plays a really big role in the starting of my downfall with addiction. So I have Myla. Bobby and I have our own place. I'm trying to create this white picket fence look that my parents had, which behind the curtains, nothing's there. And so I was essentially trying to build something that wasn't real, I guess. And so, you know, I wanted us to look like this perfect little family, especially because the odds were stacked against me. I mean, I remember when I was pregnant, my mom begged me to marry him, begged me to marry him for religious reasons. And we joke today, I'll say, hey, mom, you still want me to marry him? She'll go, shut up, shut up. But um, so there was a lot of pressure, you know, it was like, yeah. okay, you're already 19 and pregnant. People in the community are talking about it. You're pregnant oh, to this dude. So it was a lot. And, and, and so, yeah, the odds were stacked against me already. And I, I really felt that I had to prove myself to everyone. I'm also trying to build or establish my career as a licensed cosmetologist, but I was assisting in these high-end salons. So I didn't have my own chair. I was doing touch-ups and shampoos and blow dries. And so that was a hard thing. Then boom, I have her, you know, it was, I was okay for the first month or so. I had to have a DNC and my appendix removed. So I had back-to-back surgeries right after labor. So there was a lot. And then the postpartum depression came and that's what really like sent me spiraling. I did reach out for help almost immediately because of how bad I felt. And for me, I just know it's so different for everybody, but um, for me, it was just flat out severe depression. I mean, I just, I didn't feel much of a purpose to live. There was no serotonin. When I would wake up, I would just be reminded that like another day of this, that doom that I just know so many people have felt. And it's just such a horrible place to be, especially when you're a brand new mom and everybody, you should be so happy. She's so beautiful. And so then the guilt like piles, it's all piles on top. And so I get help. And their solution for me was a bottle of Xanax. I was doing therapy as well. Go ahead. Can I ask you about postpartum? Because I don't know a lot about this. Is there something about after you give birth, your hormones change so much that it is that what it exactly. comes from? Exactly. It's okay. main. It's okay. And and I think you know because I'm sure some people have a different story, different experience. But I I would say that it's generally a hormone thing, and they can okay. just go absolutely whack. Now, you know, not everybody deals with it and people who do, it's on all different levels. But yeah, as far as I know, it's a hormone change. Does everybody get it to some degree or not really? No, no, not everyone. I'd say the majority. If I had to guess, I'd say the majority. But I do know people that did not experience any mental anything after having a kid, which I envy because, I mean, it was bad. It was severe. It was bad. And... When I was given this bottle of Xanax, you know, I had number one, no idea that it could be addicting. I had no idea I could build a, a physical dependence to it. And I, and I had no idea that I couldn't drink alcohol with it. I mean, granted, I wasn't 21 yet, but, you know, there was just like no education. And so I think that first bottle maybe lasted me two weeks. You know, it was a 30 day supply because I just, when I tell you the first time I took it, I just remember thinking and feeling like, oh my God, I found the solution. Like it fixed everything. It fixed everything. It was a fix all in a pill. And I clung to that for years and it wasn't always Xanax, you know, down the road, but that was really, you know, you know, because of course with my history and with alcohol, you know, I'd clearly been using substance, you know, for unhealthy reasons. But when I took that first Xanax, that first pill, 
it just changed everything for me. I mean, I, you know, unfortunately, it's such a blur that time, which is some of the most important times as a mom with a newborn. And I was in fight or flight just flat out. And and that's where I try to give myself grace and knowing that I was doing the best that I could at that time. And I didn't actually have that much support. Like I'm grateful for my mom. Like she was physically around. Um, she'd help me with my daughter, but my mom was never good at being there for me emotionally. And I don't fault her for that. You know, I just try to do better as a mom myself, but I was in fight or flight, just in survival mode is the best way I can put yeah. it. So, you know, my okay. memory's not really there. Now, I wasn't, I hadn't become physically dependent yet. So I, at this point, okay. I still didn't know what it was like to withdraw or be, in okay. fact, yeah, my story gets kind of crazy and I can try to speed it up so that I um don't talk so, so long. But um, so what, what eventually ended up happening was I started mixing the benzos with alcohol and that's when shit hit the fan. So I started totaling cars I got my first DUI. I'm sorry. I only have one DUI. I don't know why I said it like that. I, I got my one and only <laughs> DUI, which is horrible because, you know, that that of all things is just anything that I did in my addiction where I potentially put others in, in harm's way is where I just am the most sick about. And, you know, just as somebody who's recovering and trying to continue to better my life, I have to give myself grace. But I do recognize how horrible I mean, I, there are people in prison for the rest of their lives for a, for a mistake like that and affecting and destroying another family's life for it. And so I'm so grateful that I've never hurt another person in any of my bad decision making. But, you know, so I got the DUI and the I, I was at the police station and they called my parents, the, the cops, and they said, you need to come get her or we have to put her in a holding cell for the night. And my parents said, put her in, similar to your dad, they said, put her in the cell. And I remember this was the first time that the father of my child and my parents had, this was their first major disagreement that led to their relationship just not being good. Uh, Bobby was so angry at my parents for this. And he just was trying to explain to them that this wasn't conducive the way they thought it was and that there are things that happened there that could really hurt her. He just didn't agree with their way of attempting to punish. And so it was what it was. You know, Bobby was there to pick me up that next morning. I slept through it, you know from the Xanax. So I, I don't remember much of it. You know, I do remember trying to make myself a little bed on the bench with a roll of toilet paper and all that. But that's that fun yeah. stuff that we do in there. So so then I just continued to make horrible decisions. I can specifically remember not wanting to be home and be a mom. Like I, I wanted to be at the bars. I wanted to be partying, which again, guilt just piled on because I loved my daughter so much, but I couldn't change how I felt. I didn't want to feel that way. I didn't want to want to go to bars. I wanted to want to be home with her, but I couldn't change that. And so I'd try, I'd force myself, but I was just so miserable. So I'd go out any chance I could get. And then eventually the father, my child and I split when our daughter was one, we just were not happy together. I was struggling with substances, still not dependent on any of them though. And so I moved back in with my parents and that's when things really went downhill because once I moved back in with them, with the child, I learned that that's, I can't live with my parents, but especially with the child. So there was a lot of, you know, chaos and fighting till my parents kicked me out. So then I have a daughter and nowhere to live. So now I'm staying with the people that have common interests as me. So now things are getting worse, right? So I'm staying with people who are dabbling. And so of course, naturally, these people are doing, you know, other things. And so this would be when I was introduced to Percocet. But even then, didn't become physically dependent to it. I think the only reason why I hadn't become physically dependent to anything up until this point was just because 
I think I got lucky in, in the way that I would switch it up. You know, like I would only yeah. do something for so many days and then I would do this. And then totally. I would, so I yeah. never like, so anyway, eventually, you know, I got a knock at my door of the, per- the person I was living with. It was a constable. Basically it was my parents threatening to take Mila if I didn't pull my shit together. And so I was in a place mentally with them kicking me out and this thing with Mila where I was like, I'm going to show them. And when I show them, I'm never going to speak to them again. So I was in very much this like egotistical, I'll show you place. And they had left me with an ultimatum of go to rehab or we will not be in your life. We will have nothing to do with you. And so for a little while, I fought them on that in the sense of just like, yeah, I'll show you. And I think it only lasted about a month. And for me, I just wanted my family back. Like, I have to honestly say throughout my struggle, there was never really a point where my mom and dad were just like, like, would just come and sit on the edge of my bed and ask me if I was okay. So you are mixing different drugs, which is why you think you possibly didn't get strung out on anything, which I'm sure that's why. Right, right. Are you working still? Are you working at the salon yes, when this so happens? so I'm working at the okay. salon. I had some pretty interesting things happen there. One time I fell asleep while I was shampooing somebody's hair standing up. Are you serious? So it, like, I don't even know how. I don't even know how. I remember waking up, and the creepiest part is, is I was like, I was almost like, this is so bizarre. This is, I was so strung out. I was talking like in my sleep. So apparently I was mumbling like words that didn't make any sense, like asleep. So of course my hand stopped like shampooing. Because I remember when I woke up, this was brief. It was like a couple seconds. Because when I woke up, the girl was like, she goes, What? Are you, what? She was like asking me what. So I just remember being like, oh, never. I'm sorry. Never mind. And I kept washing her hair. But after that shift, one of the master stylists pulled me aside because she saw it happen. Oh, and shit. so people okay. were starting to notice. I mean, the other big thing was I was always in the bathroom forever. Nobody could ever find Abby because she was always in the bathroom. Yeah. So that yeah. kind of started. This is also around the time Bobby's dad passed away of a heroin addiction. Okay. You know, he lived with us for a while when Milo was a newborn. So him and I were kind of close. And Bobby got a new girlfriend and she was at the funeral. And oh my God, it was a mess. It was a mess. This brand new girlfriend's at Big Bob's funeral. And I was falling apart. And so finally, I remember this vividly. I woke up in some random person's bed. And I was so just like low and I can't even say rock bottom because it gets worse. At this time, it felt like rock bottom. And I remember calling my mom and I said, mom, like whatever I have to do. And for me, really, again, I didn't need treatment in terms of withdrawing. I didn't need a medical. What I wanted at the time was my fam. I wanted support. I needed I needed healthy people who could support me, but I couldn't get that unless I'd go to rehab, you know what I mean? According to my parents. So, you know, did I need rehab at this time? You know, everybody has their own opinion on it. Some like direct people in my life say that wasn't the right thing and they believe things would be different. It doesn't matter. I believe my disease would have manifested regardless of how, but I chose to go across the country to California. So I fly out to the desert. I go to Palm Springs. I go to Michael's house. And this is my first ever treatment stay. And the moment I get there, everybody's detoxing, they're withdrawing, they're on, you know, Subbox and other things. And I am clueless. I didn't know what Subbox yeah. was. I didn't know what was going on. I'm looking at these people like, oh my. So my, I only say that to say my first thought when I walk in the door is, oh my God, I don't belong here. And so I'm immediately looking at all the differences. So at this point, it's about like just getting out of here. You know, I got really close with a girl there. 
we were roommates. And after our 30 day inpatient, her and I both decided that we were going to go to the same outpatient IOP intensive outpatient, which is, you know, basically three months of five day a week, nine to four treatment, you know, groups, and then private groups, and then therapists, and then you color, (laughs) you watch a movie, you know, it's like school, except you learn how to not do drugs. So I did, I went there with her, we went, this was in Orange County. So I went from the desert to Orange County. And so unfortunately, during this time, I really easily got caught up in this new life and the fun of it. I lost, you know, sight of the goal, which was to get better and get home to my child. So, you know, I get a boyfriend, which everybody told me not to do. And he really took up a lot of my time. So, you know, to just to fast forward through a lot of that during outpatient, I was living in a sober living. I was introduced to heroin and I was on the East or I'm sorry, the West coast. So it was a specific kind of heroin and I couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't do it in a way that I would snore pills or all the other things that I was used to. So this would be the first time, not only that I would try heroin, but IV. So you didn't want to smoke it or the person wasn't smoking it. The person wasn't smoking it. So, okay. He had, he had the stuff in a rig. So what, went through your mind because that's a big leap. That's a big leap. It's a when huge you, leap. It's huge. It's so huge. what made you were you guys in the bathroom? Were you outside smoking together? So You're outside smoking? Funny enough, this is so wild how this shit works and they tell you like it's just it, it just all checks out. So again, you know, at this time we were an outpatient. So me and this girl that got really close, which this can be a good thing, but too much of this can be bad. And that's why I try to separate. Like I, looking back, I was shocked after her and I were in detox together. They like room, they intentionally had us roommates when we went into the 30 days and when the detox thing was done, even though I wasn't really detoxing, but you know, it just shocked me that they encouraged it the way the treatment center encouraged our friendship the way that they did. Just being so early in sobriety can be scary. Generally you want to stick just for any, you know, newcomers watching, generally you want to stick with the people who've been around for a little bit, a mixture, right? Stay in the middle. We weren't staying in the middle. We were just all the newcomers sticking together, which is scary. So one specific day, her and I both decide we're not going to go to outpatient. We're not going to go to the classes. So this one day, her and I stay at the sober living. Just her and I, nobody else is home because everybody else is at outpatient doing what they need to do or at their job. But it's something that has been checked off by the house manager, right? So her and I are both home. And we are actually on the back porch at a, you know, at a table with umbrellas. There was an in-ground pool, beautiful sober living in California. And we're sitting at this table doing step work together individually doing step work somehow some way the conversations from step work and using in our past somehow led us to a point where the next thing we knew we were on the same page about wanting to try to get something and like it was over like the tingly feeling in my toes and my fingers the my stomach my the warmth it was there there was no turning back so it was simply the matter of a conversation progressing but the fact that it started from a place of doing step work yeah. it's wild how strong and intense this disease is and i think for me it was the excitement about you know i don't know it was so dumb it was so horrible because i had a flight booked to go home for christmas to see my daughter so i would say this was um november probably it might have been early December that this happened. It was it was getting close to the holidays because the flight I had, it was already booked. My parents had bought it for me. So anytime, birthdays, holidays, I would always go home to Mile if I was in California. So what we do is we call this kid 
who we met from treatment, who was not sober. That was another part of it. This kid I got really close with had relapsed and left treatment, but him and I, like I was really close with him. Sonia, we call him, we meet up with him. Where we went to do this, actually really interesting because I, when I just went out a couple months ago to hang out with Brittany Jade, we went back there and I showed her exactly where. So San Clemente Pier, there's a family restroom. You know, it's like a big, you open it and it's like a whole room. So there's, you know, the toilet, the changing table, the sink, but it's like spacious. So the three of us are in there. Me, this best girlfriend that I met day one of Palm Springs, and then this kid who wasn't sober getting us the stuff. And I sat on the baby changing table and he uh, poked me a million times until I literally got cellulitis. But yeah, that was my first time. Were you guys looking for heroin or he was like, this is all I got. You want it? And you were like, sure. We were looking for it, but you were, I, okay. even we, though you had never done it. Correct. But okay. I don't think I quite, well, I didn't, I didn't quite understand this substance and like how it exactly, like I'm thinking it's a powder and I've heard that it's just cheaper sure. than opiates. So that's where my right. head was at. Right. Like right. When, I, right. when I saw it physically, I was like, I was like, what the, I mean, I, I really it's was shocked. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Well, listen, you were on the East Coast where it was a white powder it where was people a white did powder. smoke it. And that's Out what here, I, it's yep. the grossest, stickiest, nastiest shit you ever yep. seen in your life. Yep. So, yep. okay. But you still said, do it, hit me. So I was against the IV. I was terrified. Okay. Right. So what he had me do first was he, I hate to even say this, he put a little bit of water in a bottle cap and then mixed a little bit of the tar in and literally told me to like You're snort the water. You're supposed to snort it. The so liquid. I, yeah. Right. I so know. I did that first and it, I just it's was stupid. like- stupid. <coughs> yeah. It's, it's like horrible. When you, when you no. get water up your nose in the swimming pool is yeah. what it felt like. It feels like. like you're drowning. That's um, what they do in jail. And it's yeah. so dumb. Okay. It feels okay. like you're drowning. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it didn't work either. Yeah. So at this point, yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> so I'm irritated at this point. So that you're exactly right. So I'm like, hit me. Oddly enough, I didn't know what, what we were doing, so I didn't know. But he was still right here. Really? Like, yes, which is why I ended up with so like I just I had this big puppy weird, so bizarre. Like once I you became know, a little more experienced, I was yeah. Like, what did he well, do? You know that? what I learned? You're not allowed. One of my very best friends, she'll actually hear this. She listens to the show. Is a um, what's the needle per phlebotomist? They're not only a doctor is allowed to hit your wrist veins. You're not allowed Ooh. to hit your wrist veins. Yeah, I would do it because I mentioned it to her. Like, and she's couldn't. a very experienced phlebotomist. And I was like, well, I would hit here sometimes if I had to. And she was like, really? And she looked shocked. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, you're not supposed to do that. I'm not even allowed to do that. Yeah. It, and I was it, like, I it messed my shit up. Bad. I can't believe that's the first place it, he went. That's right? insane. Insane, idiots. But oh my god. Anyway, yeah, that's insane. My thought became my foot after I became okay. which just woo, I have a yeah, okay. I have a scar. But so oh, yeah, okay. so okay. this is so here's what's so interesting though. This isn't like my downfall. I did that that day in that stall, and then I wouldn't experience dope again for quite a while. Like okay. months and months later, because okay. what happened here was, you know, I felt great. Of course I felt, oh my God, was it an experience it, you know, for me, it was the first time. Was it worth it? It never is. Nothing that feels that good. Can you be, be successful at doing and still living a proper life? That's just what I've had to tell myself. Like you just don't get to do that kind of shit here on earth and then like thrive. <laughs> you just don't get to. So, you know, I, once again, I feel great for many reasons. Problems are gone. Anxiety's gone. I just feel good. I don't care about anything. And that was always the goal. And 
And so we had this deal. Don't snitch. Well, the girl did on herself, but like it, it screwed me. So, you know, because we did it in a way where we didn't have like a drug, t- you know what I mean? We, we were careful with, well, we know we're not going to be drug tested till the weekend and we'll be clean. So we had a whole little plan, but for whatever reason, she just like came clean to her therapist in IOP the following day. And I knew I had one of two options, not saying like beat them to the chase or so that's what I decided to do was beat them to the chase. I walked into my therapist's office and I said I had something to tell her. I knew what this was going to do, which was why I desperately did not want her to tell. But then at the end of the day, it's a, it's a good thing. So what happened with that was my parents can't. Well, I tried to pull it off without them finding out, but I was on their health insurance. So what happened with the treatment center, if you would relapse, they'd make you go to detox for a couple of days, really as a punishment, because I didn't actually need detox. So I sat in a freaking little house alone, alone, completely alone, somewhere in California. It was about an hour outside Orange County. Just um, sat there, like just sat there. I mean, he, they would feed me out of van, which I didn't need, but I was willing to take it because I was sitting there. For sure. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they had to, they, they, you know what? They called my parents. That's how my parents found out. They called them. So I don't know if it had something to do with the health. Anyways, flight got canceled home. But I'll be honest with you, that that had me clean my act up a little bit out there. I After that, I did end up going back to that an original sober living. Now, my friend didn't. And this would actually be the last time I would ever see her. She ended up going to, they sent her somewhere else. And then she stayed there. And then she ended up, she's from Kansas City. I uh, I keep in touch with her. She's actually sober okay. now, which is incredible. Okay. okay. So just lots of stuff like that was going on. I was dating boys and kind of running back and forth from Pittsburgh to Cali. But ultimately, all of my sobriety, because I could go on and on and I, you know, I don't want to waste time. But um, ultimately... Everything I knew about sobriety, I knew in California. I didn't have any resources in Pittsburgh. I was introduced to it all out here. And the other thing was, after I did get some sobriety under my belt, I was working in treatment. So I was the head of a detox center in California for a, for a while. And so the struggle after finding some success with sobriety was, why the hell have I built such a beautiful life out here with my kid across the country? I didn't understand that. Right. And I'd ask God all the time. I'm like, I I thrive out here. I'm so much better off out here. I bought a car. I had a great job. I mean, I like I was a manager at this treatment center and I was making really good money. My boyfriend and I at the time, we got an apartment on the beach. Like it was um, it was insane. And so I just couldn't understand why that it was happening this way. I'm like, I didn't want to keep building this, knowing that I I, want to go home to my daughter. Is there a way to continue it out there? I didn't know. So to make a long story short, I decided that I was ready to come home. I was ready to be a mom to my daughter again. I went home to visit. I was sober. Went home to visit for Christmas. This would be the next year after the incident, the initial incident of trying it for the first time. So this next year, I'm in California. I go home for Christmas. I come back and I can't fathom like leaving my daughter again. There was just something about it. I This time around, like it just was killing me to leave her. And it just felt so wrong. So I didn't even make it through the Pittsburgh airport. And I just, I got so drunk at the airport. Oh, I, so I, so I had relapsed before I even got back out to California. Okay. I was just, okay. I just felt horrible leaving her again. It was just this mom guilt and I just couldn't face it anymore. So when I landed in California, I looked at my boyfriend at the time. And I was like, if you don't go get us this shit, like right now, I'm going to go do it on my own. Like want you be saying no, because he knew that I had never experienced heroin the way he had, the way many do, right? I dabbled. He's like, Abby, no, you just try and try and try. And finally, I think he just realized I was going to do it either way. So he gets it. This would be when 
I experienced. You understand. Oh my God. Yeah. All the The withdrawals, all all of the things. Yeah. I eventually move home. My parents think I'm sober. I'm not. You're shooting heroin. Did you bring some with you? No. My plan was to literally fly home to Pittsburgh and just start a new life and be sober. I wake up. With no dope on you. No dope on me. We did the last bit. (laughs) We did the last bit right before we went through security. And then have this grand plan to get there and like kill life. So I wake up, I, we, we get home. I wake up my first day at my parents' house and I am so effing sick. I can't even get up. And this is my first day and my parents are excited. Oh my God, it was so bad. It was so bad. So this would be, you know, I didn't have the resources I had out in California. So this would be when, you know, I went back to Percocet because I knew people here who had Percocet. So, you know, I couldn't keep up with that habit. I was working like a serving job. I was trying to be a mom. I wasn't sober. So I had no foundation, right? Nothing was going to stick. But yeah, so I'm working, I'm trying, but still I just couldn't afford the habit. So this is when I started taking my dad's checkbook and writing checks to myself. So I was forging his handwriting, writing these checks to my bank account. And I did this for a long, a long time until they found out. And, you know, as I said, my parents, they they did well for themselves because they worked very hard to do so. And so my dad's car declining when he goes to pump gas isn't something that he would normally experience. So, you know, he calls the dude. Bank. How long did that take though? I got to know how long months. Oh yeah. Uh, almost a year. Oh, oh my That's God. How long they didn't realize. How much did you take? Would you mind saying you don't have to? No, I don't mind. I just don't want to be incorrect. I've paid it all back in restitution at this point, but thousands. I mean, I don't think okay. it was higher than three, three grand. Oh, over a year? That. Okay. I thought you were going to say 20 grand. Oh, yeah. No, okay. not no, nothing okay. too crazy. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I do okay, have okay. to got say it, it. I was using okay. every penny I had and then okay. I would, you know. It was so a backup. It okay, was a backup. It. Exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't okay. fueling my entire habit. All right. Okay. okay. But I am going to double check that because I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to double check that after this. But yeah, so he tells me, you know, go to rehab where we're pressing charges. And so I go to rehab because I don't want these felony charges, not because I wanted to get sober. And I tell, I say this all the time. I don't think there's anything wrong with an outer source or something else getting you to treatment. I think that's totally fine. I just think amongst the stay there, you have to eventually find something within to keep you there. But I think, you know, an outer source getting you there, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Somebody not wanting to go to rehab and being forced, there's still a chance that amongst the journey of being in treatment, they can find a reason that they want to stay. Because that's what happened to me. You know, I went there with the sole intent to stay out of prison. And, you know, in terms of, oh, you know, you didn't want to be a mom or you didn't want to get your life together. I just thought it was over. Like, I'm just like, I ruined this life, my one shot at it. So I was over any attempt at like building a nice life. I really just didn't want to have to go to prison. So anyway, this is the first treatment stay of many that, you know, nobody's sending me anything. I can't even call anybody. Nobody's sending me mail. I mean, like not a soul, not a soul. Even my friends in California who had gotten sober and understood this disease, they weren't even picking up. And what's so funny is, you know, my guardian angel who literally is now because he also died of a direct result of this disease just during 2020. 
He was my best friend. We were house managers together in California. I mean, he was like my ride or die buddy. He was the marketing director at the treatment center. And then I ran the, I was the head of all like the techs, all the detox technicians. So him and I, like we ran shit together at this treatment center. We had a really good little setup going on out there. And, and so anyway, with him being the marketing director, he could always get flights, right? He could get people flights with their insurance to get them out there. So every time I'd blow my life up in Pittsburgh, I'd call my Charlie to get me back out there. So of course, like every other time, I had to get right into treatment, obviously. But while I'm there, I'm blowing him up, trying to get back on the West Coast, because that's what I do. I couldn't stay here in Pittsburgh after what I had just done. I had to run away and leave the mess for my family, which is what I always did. And for the first time, he said no. And I was just like, mother effing him, screaming at him at the phone. I hate you. I'm never going to speak to you again, you piece of shit. Why would you do this to me? And looking back now, I understand what he was doing. And I think yeah, for the first time ever, like he selfishly wanted me there, which is why I give him even more credit. I mean, we were best friends, but he knew that I had to figure this out here. I had to get this straight. I had to figure this out here where I needed to be, where I needed to live, where I'd be raising my kid. And so he just wouldn't do it. And because of that, I had no choice but to stay at this treatment center in Pittsburgh, which, by the way, this was the first time I ever went to treatment in Pittsburgh. Every okay. other time it was in California. So the only okay. reason I had stayed this full 30 days was because I had no other options. So, okay. you know, I had nowhere to go after. So, of course, I set something up with the aftercare specialists to go to their sober living, which I didn't even have the money to get into. So my Charlie in California, he paid my first month's rent there just so I could get in. Yeah, he's incredible. And so that was my saving grace. And again, because this was the first time where nobody was there to give me any other option. So right, I couldn't do anything other than to go in this sober living, which by the way, was in the hood, probably two doors down from my dealer. I was used to these like mansions in Southern California. This was so necessary for me. Like I can't yeah, even tell totally. you, you know, there were some days the heat didn't work. There were mice in the house. Like there were 10 girls in there, you know, I'll never forget that day that I walked in, but it, that stuff didn't matter. What mattered was I was in a home with like 10 women who were also trying to stay sober. And some of them had a year and she, you know, was the head house manager and and just had a lot of experience. And then you had somebody with a little bit of less time than you. And that's just the whole idea of staying in the middle and living there gave me that. And I otherwise would not have chose it for myself. And naturally, in order to stay there, you had to follow their rules, which was, you know, this many meetings a week, and you had to do your step work, and they'd call your sponsor every week. And if you were on the same step you were on last week, that was your warning. After three warnings, you were kicked out. It was so strict. And it was strict in the sense of the AA program, which I have to say, I had never fully given a a try to. When I went to California that first time, I tried a faith-based program. Then it was like, I go to meetings here and there. I never dove headfirst into AA until I had this last time, ironically, until this last time, because I had no other choice. Whether I wanted to do AA or not, I had to because I needed this place to live. And you know, I had found a little bit within that I wanted to do it, but what were you going to say? So is this, is this your sober date this time when you go to Pittsburgh and then the sober living and then yep, April 24th, this is it. Okay. So this becomes your actual sobriety date. Yeah. This is it for me. In the sober living and it's a different kind of experience. You dive into 12 steps. Who had Mila? Who had your daughter this whole time? 
So I'm so glad that you asked that because that's a huge part of my story that I didn't think about just because, you know, there's so much. So, you know, one thing about Myla's dad, as much as I can say about him, it's actually very interesting because his entire family, this disease runs rampant through his side of the family. You know, his dad died of it. His mom's mom, unfortunately, committed suicide on substance. I mean, it runs deep. You know, I think for Bobby, you know, he he was a 12-year-old kid and he'd be playing outside with friends. And every day he had this responsibility by not even his mom. I think it was Grandma Sal. His Grandma Sal gave him this job to where he would, his uncle, he would have to go to his uncle's house every day at the same time every day, just peek his head in the door. And that was it to make sure that he was alive and breathing. Because he was struggling, his uncle was struggling so bad. But Bobby was like 12 years old. And, you know, these were the types of responsibilities he had while the adults were working was he had to go check on, you know, so and so to make sure that they had an overdose and just, you know, so I think for Bobby, he saw it so much and he didn't want that for himself. And he knew that. Okay. But he was also raised in the world of it. And he didn't see anything else. He didn't know anything else. So he was like a part of that life, but not on the end of consuming it. That makes any sense. And so that that's all he knew. And for me, nobody in my family struggles with addiction. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know that. I, I mean, I thought I was exempt, apparently, you know. And so it was really interesting the way, you know, I was the one who ended up struggling. So so Bobby never, never really did. So so I only say that to say he was there parenting. He had her the whole time. All of this. Oh, wow. But okay. I didn't. My biggest fear when I was away was that she wasn't going to have any relations with my family. And as much as, you know, we've been through with my family, at the end of the day, my parents, they were great parents and I, and I wanted Myla to have a relationship with them. So my therapist and the outpatient recommended that I hand over my rights, my custody to my mom and dad so that it would then okay. be, because Bobby and I were doing 50-50, not through the courts. Okay. When him and I split, okay. it was just a mutual decision. I We were okay. So we were doing 50-50, and rather than him getting 100%, I wanted my parents to have my half. Okay. So okay. They could be in her life. Because as much as Bobby was a good dad and he wasn't using drugs, he was still this, like, really young guy. And it, I just knew yeah. – I wanted Myla to have more, more stability. Yeah. Okay. So my therapist – Okay really told she recommended that I give custody and I'll be honest with you if I would have known how hard it was going to be to regain those rights I may not have done it but yeah it's the most selfless decision that I think I made in my addiction and it's it's one decision that I have to genuinely say I'm so glad I made and I don't regret it but okay again if I would have known how hard it was of a road it would be I may not have done it so I'm glad that I didn't know but it yeah, so I gave my rights to my mom and dad when I was in this first treatment center, um, this okay. first outpatient treatment center back in California. So my parents and Bobby were co-parenting. Now, unfortunately, you know, it got it got bad. They started f- battling in court. Like I said, him and I had never gone through the courts, but when they took over my half, just there were so many disagreements, and okay, my parents were like the polar opposite of Bobby and Bobby's family, and so yeah, it ended in a lot, a lot of court battles. And so I'm out in California while they're dealing with all of this. Okay, and my parents are trying to okay. get more custody, so it just was kind of crazy. But yeah, so okay, my parents. So and that's Bobby, who had her. So when I was in the sober living, I wasn't speaking to, of course, my parents. We were in the middle of this court battle. They filed charges anyway? Yes. I'm so sorry. So 
Let me back up to the most important part. I was trying to like speed up because I felt bad. Okay, so this is like probably the most important part of my story. I am two days out from graduating rehab. I'm like actually starting to feel like a human again. And I have like this teensy bit of motivation to get out there and like actually do something with myself, which I hadn't had that motivation in a very long time. So one could say I was doing well. They do mail call and my name is called and I'm like, no, no way. Not a single person is sending me mail. And they're like, nope, Abby Figley's has your name on it. I'm like, okay. So he hands me this letter. I open it. I'm sitting next to one of my friends that I made in rehab. And it is a three page typed disownment letter from my father. And the last page, it's all about just how, I mean, I've destroyed my family they have, like my siblings has, have suffered because of all of the time and energy my parents have given to me and just the way I've destroyed and embarrassed everyone. And he talks about how he was the one person who trusted me, believed me, and that I made him look silly or I made him look dumb. And, and just he was the one person that was advocating for me and I let him down. It was just horrible. And then the, the, he let me know that they cut me off of their health insurance and that they had cut like any and all ties. They sold my apartment and everything in it, all kind of stuff like that. And then the grand finale was the final page, letting me know that he also decided to go through with the charges. So like head is spinning, wanting to puke, can't see straight, like terrified, right? Sitting there, like everything had changed in that moment because now I'm back to what's it all for? Like why even do all of this? If I'm just going to go to prison, I'd rather just get high and not have to deal with it. Like, that's how I felt, you know? But you stay sober? You stay clean? I do. How? So you just the women in that house. So mind you, this was two days out from graduation. So I find this out. The first thing I did was like run around to every person in there that had ever been in legal trouble. What does this mean? What's going to happen? How long am I going to go away for? Like anybody's going to have an answer for me. But, you know, still selfishly only concerned with what's going to happen to me. And my daughter, I mean, I have to be honest. That, I mean, that was the biggest thing. I'm like, my seven, my kid's not even going to know who I am. So like just a whirlwind. But I graduate two days later and I move into this sober living. And ironically, it's wild. The first full day in the sober living. So I get there the next day. I had a court, I had a court hearing and it was for a possession charge. So I go to this court hearing and I get arrested because I had a warrant out for my arrest because my parents had pressed charges, but I was in rehab. So I couldn't go to the first initial date, which at that point it was still just at like our local, like it hadn't made its way downtown yet. So it was like that first initial date, like at your local municipal or or whatever. I don't know. I can't think of the word where you go for like a traffic ticket, but I missed it because I was in rehab and I didn't know because I didn't know about it until I got the letter. So he had pressed the charges before that. So if I would have known, they could have wrote me a letter. Anyway, didn't. So I'm waiting for my name to be called in the courtroom to stand in front of the judge for this possession charge. They call my name and two cops stand up. And right then and there, it was over. Like anytime your name is called and two cops stand up, it's over. So she tells me that I have a warrant out for my arrest because I missed a court date for, you know, these charges that my parents pressed that are totally separate from why I'm here today. And I tell this judge that I was in rehab, but I have to be honest, like I wasn't fighting it. I wasn't, I was so broken down. I just like let them take me. I didn't say a word, but she, you know, the judge, oh, I'm going to get you out of there. And, you know, she was saying things like you could tell she felt bad. But anyway, I spent the night in jail sober. 
my first oh my full day out of rehab. I mean, it I was, can't imagine getting arrested sober. Listen, That's insane. Insane. And so I kept feeling like, like this isn't meant for me. It just felt like every time I was trying to do the right thing, like something would yeah. steer me. I feel like I almost took it as a challenge because just like shit kept coming up like this. So, you know, I clung on there. Granted, there's a God. There was a girl in there who was sober and her and I, and granted, we were just in a holding cell. We didn't get booked, of course, but you know, we prayed together, we held hands and we'd pray. And there was an older woman who was like <laughs> our little mom in there for like 24 hours. She would pray over us. And like, it, it was a very <laughs> weirdly spiritual experience. Very, like, I can't even really explain it to you, but so I get out and I'm terrified that I'm going to get kicked out of the sober living because Abby didn't come home last night, but I'm sober. I, I swear to God. So anyway, I go back, I tell him what happened. Okay. I have to say this. This was a really big moment within AA for me and my ability to believe that this program could potentially help me. This was a huge, a very important piece. So I assume that I'm going to be kicked out. Bobby picked me up from jail. He took me to get a cheeseburger. i clean the plate. He was laughing at me. And then he drove me back to the sober living where he dropped me off. And I'm like terrified to walk in. I have a big white t-shirt on and nothing. And I walk out <laughs> my court clothes. I ended up throwing away. That's another story. But, um, so I walk in the front door and every single girl that lived in that sober living was standing at the door, including the woman who owned like the, she has multiple sober living. It's called Pittsburgh sober living. And she's in there. She doesn't live there, but she was there and everybody else. I walk in and I just kind of stop and they having no idea what to expect. Right. And I shit you not all of them just open their arms like this. And I just like broke down. I mean, it was the first time in my life that although I was such a horrible person and was doing bad things, making bad decisions, somebody just wanted to show me love and like grace and kindness. And of course, right. They understood they'd been there and that's what the program is about, but it was such a new concept to me. And that was such a pivotal point for me in AA and trusting that this program could help me and that it wasn't judgmental and the way that I had heard and all these things you hear about AA. And it was enough for me to give it a chance. And so I sat down, I told them what happened. I did get drug tested, which was fine. Yeah. And and I stayed in that sober living for a, for a year. I became the house manager oh, at wow. that sober living. My daughter started to come to visit me. I was just what this morning I had a Snapchat memory came up five years ago today. It was um, me cutting Myla's hair in the living room at the sober living, which is just crazy. I love that, that, that community aspect pulled you into the trust of the program. So then you get a sponsor and you start doing steps and Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. So I got a sponsor. I got a sponsor. I ended up switching sponsors, but then the woman who I switched to, I really, really clung to. I have a certain way of, of healing. Like what it took for me to get sober was pretty intense. Right. And so naturally I'm the same way with other, when I'm helping other people. And I, what I've learned over the years is it doesn't work for everyone. I just am like a no bullshit. I'm not going to let you be a victim. I'm going to tell, I'm going to be honest. I might hurt your feelings. But like the reason those kind of people were few and far between when I was in early sobriety. But but when I did come across women like that, who weren't afraid to just tell me who I really was and what I really looked like and what I really needed to do, those were the women women that changed my life. Not the ones that, and, and of course, everybody deserves the grace and kindness and that's fine. But I needed somebody to be like, you're not shit. 
Like, I don't know why you think you are, and I don't know who you think you're fooling, but the only person you're hurting is you. Nobody else is, is suffering or nobody else. You're not getting over on anyone because you're getting high and keeping it a secret. You're dying. Right. Everybody right. else is okay. And it was just, you know, so women like that, I really had to cling to. My sponsor was one of those women. And then in addition to the steps and the program and, and going to meetings and picking up commitments and those, you know, I, I remember when I became the key holder to my home group, I sent a picture of me holding those keys to every person in my family. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I was like, somebody trusts me. <laughs> but like really those commitments, they're so, it's so important. Like, they're pivotal to start to believe. Yeah, to be like, I remember I was shocked I didn't lose the notebook when I was the secretary for <laughs> Listen, a meeting. A After deal. a few months, I was like, how do I still have this binder? How have I not lost this cheap ass binder that's falling apart? I, I still have it. I, know. I was floored. Oh my God. It's a God. big deal. It is a big deal, especially like treasurers with the money. Yeah, yeah. well, that I've that I've never been. I'd be so fine, many, obviously. I wouldn't take anything, but that right, I've never been. Right, me neither, but we would always make jokes about the treasure. Right. So you get a commitment, you're doing 12 step stuff, you stay in the sober living for a year, and then at some point you move out. And then I, when does yeah. your content creation start? Because now your primary income is as a, you know, a sober influencer and content creator, which is so, so cool. So thank you. How do we evolve to there? Yeah. So like I mentioned to you, when we first got on the call, I've always been into creating content. I always have like, even if it was just like cute, like video compilations for like my mom's birthday or, you know, whatever. I've always done things like that. And then too, like I previously mentioned in middle school, I had a YouTube channel. And then I tried again when I was a lot older, like when I became a mom, I tried like a makeup channel, but anyway, it's all, I've always enjoyed it. But when I started working, cause that was also a requirement. Plus I needed to pay the rent at the sober living. I got a serving position in downtown Pittsburgh I began waiting tables. After a little bit of time, I just couldn't help but to notice the bartenders were making a little bit more money. My boss did not want me to bartend because he knew my story. It's why he hired me. I just kind of walked in and like word vomited the truth to him and he gave me a shot. So he was very hesitant with the bartender thing. So in the meantime, I just decided to learn on my own. I asked every single question. Anytime I'd be at the bar rail, like grabbing my table to drink, I'd be like, what is that? How did you make it? What'd you put in it? And I kept asking questions. And then the bartenders, they knew I was interested. So then they'd be like, Abby, come here. They'd be making a special drink. So I really started to learn. And then one day a bartender, no call, no showed. It was Kenny Chesney was playing at Heinz Field. And the bar that I worked at was right across the bridge. And we had a bartender, no call, no show. And my boss looked at me, he goes, you ready? And I was like, of course, I'm always ready. He goes, no, you ready? You ready to bartend? And I was like, oh, shit. But anyway, I got thrown behind the bar that day. And I've been a bartender ever since. So it's such a rite of passage, what you just said, the girl, the younger person that wants to be a server who every time you go pick up your shit from the little bar thingy, you try to ask them a couple of questions and you see how they get to just stand there and people come to them and you're running around like an idiot and you want to bartend, but everybody else wants to bartend too. It is such, it's a journey to be able to bartend. I started bartending in Athens, Georgia. Yes. In Athens, Georgia, University of Georgia, downtown, it legendary bars. You got to be good and I had no experience and I wanted to bartend. It's like booking a movie in LA. It's like getting your SAG card or something to become a bartender. Everything that you just said. And then it's so scary when you're back there it for is. the first time. Even pour, pouring a draft beer, 
I'm like, please don't want to be... film up too much. <laughs> yeah. Please, please look okay. Please look like I've done this before because I never have. Please okay, don't so film anyways, a couple so, with yeah. So you start bartending. So yeah, so so bartending and and serving. You know, I got to credit the serving too. Is what initially got me on my feet financially as someone in early recovery. Obviously, not that's not for everyone. It's one of the biggest questions I get online: How the hell? Why the hell? But you know, it, it's not like I woke up one day in the sober living and said, I want to be a bar. T-. It just happened that right. way for me. Right. I was just serving tables to get by. Right. And one thing led to the next. So, you know, wasn't none of it was intentional. It all happened naturally. But when I did, I'd say, you know, at one point, alcohol really controlled my life. And I have made alcohol my bitch by making it uh. like my <laughs> income. So I used to totally. kind of jokingly yeah. say that because it did. It yeah. happened unintentionally. Now, of course, I didn't want to bartend forever, but I didn't know what I wanted to do until about 2020. So I was right at a year living at the sober living right around a year of sobriety when I was ready to leave. What it was for me, my reasoning for wanting to leave the sober living, it was my real life was starting to become so full. It was just so it was so there was so much happening in such a great way that some of the things that I had to deal with at this sober living, it, it just start, it wasn't working out anymore. Sitting at a table and waiting for somebody who can't pee for three hours to take a drug. For sure. I'm like, I don't have this time the way I used to. I don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm you a evolved. mom. Or I evolved. Yeah. I'm spending more time with yeah. my kid. I'm tired. I got to be up at six because I have this and then I got to go there. And that's great, right? And it wasn't always like that. I built that. But just to say, like, you know, if anybody's like, how did you know you were ready? That's how I knew I was ready. It just wasn't fitting in my life anymore, but for a good reason. I wasn't out doing dumb shit. I, you know, it was good. It was work. It was motherhood. It was speaking at meetings and having commitments that I just couldn't do it anymore. So I found a little itty bitty baby studio apartment, one bedroom, no living room, um, had a bathroom. And that was my first place. And I was still bartending. And then, you know, I promised Myla. So at this point she was staying with me. But she was still staying with my parents, too. So she's living with Bobby, me, and my parents. Then I'm promising Myla, like, I'll get her her own bedroom. I'm, I'm making these promises. One lease later, I moved into a two-bedroom. It was the other side of the duplex. So same landlord, somebody, it was a godsend. This girl had just moved in, and I wanted it so bad. And then she unexpectedly got into a college in another state that she didn't think she was going to get into and she had to move and I was able to take over the rent just I only say that because there's so many god moments in my story because I was in Disney World with my mom and dad and Milo when that happened so obviously this is a little while later because I had found a lot of success with my parents and just to jump back to that so I was dealing with that court case with the felony charges with my father for the entirety of living in the sober living. And back to the like, how the F did you stay sober through that? That is where the biggest reward came. And I, as cliche as it may sound, I fully do believe that like the larger the mountain in the, that you have to get over or just the bigger the struggle, the larger the reward. So for me to try to have to stay sober as somebody who's in early sobriety, knowing that I'm potentially facing, this was 32 counts of forgery, identity theft, and theft by unlawful taking, which was looking like a minimum of seven years of state. No way. Yeah. And I knew that. And I, yeah, yeah. So for the first, I want to say, month that I lived at the sober living, I threw up daily. Every morning, I just would puke. It was, it was like, I was so sick and I was so fearful of the unknown that I like couldn't, I physically couldn't take it. My body couldn't handle the fear. 
it was a horrible way to live. I was miserable. I was terrified. I was physically ill. You know, my roommates would try to comfort me and I I saw no purpose in anything. And that was when somebody recommended, they're like, have you tried to talk to God about it? And I was like, oh my God, save it, save it, you know? And eventually it just got so unmanageable that I'm like, you know what, as stupid as this is, I'm going to do it. And I fell to my knees. Just a lot of people have, you know, their own similar story. And it sometimes can be cheesy or cliche or whatever, but like, it is so real. It, it truly is so, so real. And I, all I did was I looked up and I said, I don't know if you're real. I don't know what's up there. You know, I had my experience with church as a kid and I wasn't really sure. And so I didn't have any set religion. I had ex- some faith-based experiences in California. And so I had found, you know, those really great worshiping kind of churches. And I liked those, but I I really still wasn't sure. So I'm like, I don't know, you know, if you're real or what's up there, but if you are like, can you please just take this, like this weight? I I said, I can't carry it anymore. It's too heavy. And I just need to give it over to you. And no crazy miracle happened in that moment. I didn't immediately feel lighter. Nothing changed in that moment or maybe even that day. But what I can absolutely say is after I did that, things started to change for me internally. I started to just feel a little bit more hopeful each day. And I think a lot of it was time. I just think I had to just keep doing what I was doing every day. And the more time I had under my belt, you know, obviously the more I was coming back from the drugs and and the relapse and my head was becoming more clear and I was going to these meetings and I was building confidence with the women and the people around me. And so whether it was this hope in the sense of, well, might as well enjoy this time that I'm free right now, or if it was, don't even think about what could happen. Let's just focus on today because that was a lot of it is like, well, where are your feet? You know, constantly reminding myself, where am I right now? Where are my feet right now? That's what we're going to focus on. And so all of those thought processes though, and the ability, you know, if it was a word of advice from someone else, or if it came from me, regardless, being able to actually listen to that. I think came from those prayers that I, you know, asked. And eventually it just got easier. It got easier to live every day. I was still scared when I thought about it. I'd get that pit in my stomach. I'd still get sick. The anxiety would come, but I was able to function. And honest to God, I really wasn't before that. I was so scared. I I couldn't even function. And so the reason I bring that up a lot of the time is because that is how I built my relationship with the God that I literally rely on every day of my life today. And for the past five plus years, I mean, that was my chance to build a relationship with God, in my opinion, like I, I chose to make it that and I, and I guess I didn't realize that at the time, I more so was just so desperate, right. But what it did ultimately was it built me a relationship with God. So in the hardest and the worst of situations, there's such an opportunity there. And I just think that's important for people to hear because you can turn something really, really horrible into because God and having God in my life has changed my life in so, I mean, so many ways, right? And, you know, who knows, maybe something else would have brought me to the same place and the same relationship. But it was just so such a heavy situation to find help in that from God. There was no doubt that whether it be God, the universe, all I knew, all I know is there is something and it's more powerful than me. And that's really all you need to know, in my opinion, right? Because I know people struggle with the God thing. They absolutely do. No, I'm glad you said that. I love that because you didn't initially know what you were going to say, but you just said, hey, look, I don't know if you're there, but can you remove this weight? I mean, that's actually a very, that's a beautiful prayer. Yeah, it's heavy. It's very, very heavy. you move out. Yeah. At some point you start doing 
content creation and let's like move into what your life looks like today because a lot started to evolve for you there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I, just to say really quick, I, I, I hit a year sober, I want to say, and that's when I had trial for the charges just because I feel like people ask. And I have to say this too, after, you know, building that relationship with God and time had gone on and whatever, I started to talk to my parents here and there. We had no relationship by any means, but we started to communicate briefly, just enough that like I could go pick Mila up and bring her to the sober living and hang out with me. So there wasn't really a relationship, but there was communication. So I have court, I have trial for these charges. You had a public defender, obviously. So I had a public defender and then this is crazy, but, and mind you too, like this is the longest sobriety time I had ever had. So for my family and people around me, it did look like there was a chance that I might actually be able to do this there. People were hopeful even as a chronic relapser. So what ended up happening to make a really long story short is by the absolute grace of God, my father hired a lawyer on my behalf and fought the charges alongside me in the courtroom. Oh my gosh. I mean, listen, and here's the thing. I don't, my, my parents don't have much experience with the law, of course. I mean, that's not a bad thing, but I don't think they realized that after sure, pressing the charges, this state would pick them up no matter what. What was going to happen, for I sure. I think they too thought, yeah, that they could revoke if they wanted, or I just, I don't 100%. think my dad realized like, oh, you changed your mind. You don't want your daughter to go to jail. Well, we picked up the charges and She's so so that's where we found ourselves, my parents. And here's the thing they didn't regret it by any means. This wasn't them like backpedaling, like, wait, stop. They knew what they had done, they knew why they did it. But here I am now. And so, yeah, so my dad hired a lawyer on my behalf. He fought the charges next to me. And that was the first time I ever saw my dad cry in the courtroom. He spoke on my behalf in front of the judge. And we got 32 counts of forgery, identity theft, and theft by unlawful taking dropped down to a misdemeanor theft charge, Whoa. which is just, okay. I, I didn't even deserve it. I really didn't even deserve it. But I, for the rest of my life, will make sure daily that I thank everybody involved by just living the way I choose to live today. Like, there's no other way that I can possibly thank the judge, my parents, God, no words will ever do it. It's a way of living every single day. That's how I... My same thing with my daughter. I mean, no words will do it for anybody. So, and I wouldn't expect them to. So, just living. So, every what day. did your dad say that when you guys went to dinner? You said you started by saying, "I'm excited to talk about this because I've never spoken." Yeah. About it with well, him. you know what? It's a great, great time to ask because this kind of ties into content creation, and, and that's where we're getting into anyway. So, with content creation, which I started during COVID. And, you know, like I mentioned to you off camera, I just, YouTube was, I really wanted to do it, but I just didn't have the means. I didn't have the technology, the storage space. I just would get so frustrating. And I took a lot of time away from my daughter, the editing. So I gave up on YouTube. When when I found out about TikTok, I'm like, okay, short form, 60 second videos, I can get down with that. So I start creating content and I start sharing about my journey, sobriety, basically everything I've been through. And it started to catch a little bit of traction, nothing crazy. I'm not one of the blow up overnight stories by any means, but people who related were starting to find me and I was starting to enjoy it more and more. And so naturally I started to share more and more. And so when I share the story about my dad pressing charges, it has gone viral plenty of times. And so with that, obviously my dad knows, and it's been really cool, especially in the beginning, it was like, Oh my God, look at this. It was just so new and crazy. And And so my dad knows that I talk about it quite a bit because of my job. And so that ties into the conversation at dinner last week. So I was saying earlier that 
my dad and I, we don't really ever talk about, like, we talk about sobriety all the time, but we don't ever really get into, like, him pressing the charges, what he was going through when he was doing it, like, none of that. And so when we had this dinner the other night, and this was just, like, he helped me build some furniture, and then he said, hey, you want to grab food? I mean, there was no intent for any of this. Like I said, we ate for 20 minutes, and then we talked for two hours, so it was incredible, but very unexpected. So what he said at dinner, and you know, I do think a lot of this comes from how much I talk about it online is he said to me, you can't give me this much credit. He goes, you gave me more credit than I deserve. And, you know, again, I think a lot of that is because of my job. So I talk about it more than I probably otherwise would, you know, yeah. Yeah. To okay. him, here was his reasoning. He goes, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, he, you know, he's like, I wasn't like, I'm going to press charges against her. This is how it's going to go. She's going to get sober, stay sober and build this beautiful life. I mean, he had no effing clue. And and so what he was basically saying was, he's like, I was clueless. I was out of options. I didn't know what the hell to do. All I knew was that my daughter was dying. My youngest daughter was dying. And this was like the last thing that I could think of that would potentially, you know, like your dad, I just lock her up, put her somewhere where she can't kill herself. Literally. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's so sad and scary and not intentionally kill ourselves. But I mean, slowly, but surely just yeah, destroy course. ourselves. And so, you know, he was just and, and I said to him, in that moment, I said, Well, Dad, it's and here's the thing, you know, he still does deserve the credit, because regardless of if he knew what he was doing, if he knew that that was the right thing, or what his intent was, a lot of where my respect lies, and why I talk about this so much on the internet is because I'm a parent. And the respect lies in the place of, I don't know how he did it, right? So regardless of the intent, if he knew it would work, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that he was able to actually pull through and do it because my mom, and she'll say it flat out, could have never done it, which is why she shut her mouth, tied her hand and just didn't talk and stayed out of it, which I thank her for every day because otherwise she would have, you know, stopped it. So I owe my mom just as much credit because she knows herself enough to know that she had to stay out of this one. And my dad alone, you know, had to do like probably one of the hardest things you could ever do to one of your kids. And so that is where my respect lies because as a mother, and I said this to him at dinner, I'm truly afraid I'd enable my kid to death and not because I love her so much, but because I'm not that strong. I think though that there is a little bit more credit deserved, which is that the relationship that he built with you when you were a kid showing up for you all the time and he was the primary nurturer, I think, because that was the same thing with my dad, I think that even if we don't know it consciously, on some level, when that person that has been like the most important person says, you're done in my book, I do think that somewhere in the midst of all of the things that go into our final last moment, that piece is part of it. Cause there are lots of people that's press charges against their kids. Right. But they didn't develop the same relationship with them when they were growing up. They didn't have the protective parental re- relationship to where it actually really had the lasting impact that it did. That's I think that that's probably a good point. I never would have thought you know? of the relationship, the core, right? Like what's, right. I never, I never put it that Just way. Think about I, it. Like I, agree with I you guarantee all. you. Yeah. Inside Bobby's family, it sounds like there's been people press charges against family members. Who cares? You know what I mean? But I mean, I don't want to make that generalization about his family. But I know you know what, you, what I mean. No, like, I there's know a lot of mean. addiction in a family. Yep. As yeah, an example, exactly. it's, it's more so you don't put much thought. Right. It's not as big of a deal. Or That's a very good point. And I yeah. do think you're right. 
I do think you're right. He earned it 10 years ago. Maybe he didn't earn it that day, but he earned it 10 years you're ago. You're right. And it had a lasting impact, you know? You're absolutely right. Oh, wow. I appreciate that because I never, I never looked at it that way or thought of that. Yeah. So that was so, pretty cool. Yeah. So now you're so a now content creator we're, full we're, time. You're a homeowner. Oh my God. This is right? insane. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I jumped into TikTok. I found my love for it, then Instagram, but then I was seeking a little more. So I literally repurposed every every video, everything I had ever worked hard on and blasted it to YouTube and YouTube showed the F up. <laughs> and I will never be able to thank them. Oh my God, the way I, I, I want to, because I just, no words can say how grateful because YouTube yeah, it's what really changed the game for me. So my goal has always been, well, since I started creating content to hopefully be able to do this full time one day, really, the goal was to work for myself to make my own schedule as a single mom. You know, I was missing out on so much, right? Because I had to bartend yeah. the Friday, and not Saturday, bartend. And then, yes. Yes. Yeah. And bartending is fun, but it sucks. It, yes. Too. It, no, you're you exactly know what I mean? Right. I it's, did it for a long time. It's exactly kind of fun, right. but it sucks. You know, Especially it's late have, nights and it's yes, it's late nights and, and that's when you make the money and and so that's great. But you know, I had a a kid in first grade. Like these were like the prime years, and I was missing yeah, like chorus concerts because I had to keep the lights on, and it was just such a shitty thing. And you know, I my heart goes. I know so many people are in that exact predicament, and there's just not much they can do about it because they have to they have to pay the bills. And I, I sympathize with those people so much. And so I wanted something different. I wanted to do a lot of things differently. This was just one of them. I just really wanted to change the kind of switch up the narrative. I wanted to work smarter and not harder. And I wanted to show that like, not even just show, I mean, a lot of it was for me and Myla, just that, you know, I don't know, I could just, I could do this differently and I could do it successfully. And that was just to be able to control how I wanted my life to look, when I wanted to work, how I wanted to work, when, how I picked my schedule, all these things and just the freedom that comes with it. And so I fought for a really long time. I was doing, I mean, all day long, I'd be filming, editing, uploading videos, and then I'd fly to the bar and I'd work at the bar until 3 a.m. And I did this from 2020 until six months ago, I think is when I quit the bar. It hasn't been that long. It, you know, just, just yeah, a couple months. So anyways, for years, I worked both jobs because, you know, that I had to keep working on the social media, but I wasn't really making much money yet. So I had to also be working another job that was paying the bills. So this job is paying the bills, but this one is hopefully going to lead me to my dream life and dream lifestyles. So I kept going, I kept going, I kept praying, I kept being a good person when nobody was watching. I kept, you know, being a good mom and keep, kept building up my relationship with Myla. And we went from that little baby loft to the other side of the duplex with the two bedrooms. And then my next goal was to get into my daughter's school district, which is the same, you know, where I grew up and it's hard to get into this district. It's just expensive and taxes are insane, like a lot of other places. And there was just no way I could afford it. And the only way to rent, it was going to be some apartment. And I just didn't want to go back to an apartment. I wanted a yard. So anyway, I found out a girl was moving out of a little baby tiny house that was for rent. And I jumped in this house so fast. I told her, don't even clean it. Just take the stuff out of it that you want that's yours. And like, I dove into it. It truly is like that here. Because when I just moved out of there, the amount of people that reached out to me, like begging, don't you don't have to clean it. You don't even have to move. So it's hard. So I, I get to that house. I'm running that. And now I have a house and a driveway and a yard and a backyard. 
with a fence. And so now, now we're cooking with gas, right? Like now I can get a dog <laughs> and a tree swing and like all these things that I wanted for my kid. And we did, we got a dog and then we got another dog <laughs> and we just continued to build our life up. And my goal was, yeah, to buy a house because I wanted to invest my money and I just wanted to, I, I don't know, I'm just so hard on myself and I have so many like things that I want to accomplish and being a homeowner was one of them. I picked something, you know, I, there's many things I want in life, but you know, I put them in an order, a specific order chronologically, and then I pick one and I go and go and go until I get it. I have no problem working my, like I have no problem putting in the work. And that's what it was with this house. I wanted it. I wanted it so bad for quite a while. And so, yeah, about six months ago, you know, YouTube, people start showing up for me. So I, I really put a lot of my time and energy into YouTube. And so that continued to grow. And then we got our plaque and my daughter was like, she just wants the plaque. <laughs> just like, yeah. <laughs> get the gold one next mom. I'm like, let me, I'll get right to it. Like, it's just so easy. But no, it's been, it's been cool to have her watch all of this. But yeah, so then about six months ago, I finally found myself in a good enough spot that I felt confident enough, I guess, to quit bartending. Now, mind you, I, I dropped off day by day. It's so like I dropped, I was working four days, 10 hour days, dropped one day and working three days a week, dropped another day working two days a week. I worked two days a week for a long time. I stayed steady with that. I truly integrated myself slowly, but surely, especially as somebody in recovery, like didn't want to rock the boat too hard. So I really tried, you know, to do things slowly. And then I, yeah, I'm down to one day and then just finally got to that place where it was like, this is not worth my time anymore. And then, yeah, so about six months ago is when I officially became a full-time content creator and last month was on my first home. That's so amazing. That's so amazing. Like Thank what a you. huge jump. Yeah. I can't from- even wrap my head around it. I really can't. What a cool thing. <laughs> Thank what a you. cool thing. I appreciate it. So, and I've learned a lot from you too. And like I was telling you off air, like I'm going all in on YouTube, my friend. You're in my f- inspiration now. <laughs> so- <laughs> A place to be. Where can, yeah. And everybody does tell me that. So, you know, so on all the, all the platforms, where can people find you? So I keep it real easy. It's just my first and last name on every platform. Abby Fickley. Abby is A-B-B-E-Y. My dad named me after- Abby Road. That's why my name is spelled with an E in it. So yeah, Abby Fickley on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And then just to let you know too, within my YouTube page, within Abby Fickley, I have a sub channel that is strictly dedicated to sobriety content. So in addition to my main platform, because on my main platform, you'll see a lot of lifestyle mom stuff and recovery stuff. But I have that sub channel within my main that is dedicated to comedy, you know, real realness, a combination, but all sobriety. So I just wanted to create a safe space for everyone, everyone in that regard. So that's there too. Okay. Um, but yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for your time. I learned so much. Oh my from God. You. Thank you for yours. I'm so glad well, hey, that we were able to do this. Oh, me too. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. And now I'm definitely inspired on the YouTube front. Good. Yeah. Listen, I, I'm, I'm so glad it worked out that way. Cause I just remember I would yeah. pray to God all the time and I'd see other people blowing up on TikTok and I'd be like, God, I just don't understand. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Abby. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. I know we're both chatterboxes, so I'm glad that we got to really, <laughs> really thank you yes, for your time <laughs> and thank you for all who, who listened. <laughs>